Well, let's hear that track. Yeah, Jeremy, 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 let's hear that track. Let's hear that track. Let's hear that track. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the new book, Don't Cry Over Spilt Wine, How to Rise Above the Bullshit and Take That Pearl. <laughs> oh, I like that. Wonderful. I think I always say that. I need to stop saying that. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I like that. <laughs> and I'm co-host... Peter, and I am a barren wasteland lumber baron. My name is Jacob. I'm a purveyor of fine third-hand silks. I am a long-time listener, first-time caller. Ooh. Oh. Whoa. Jacob Selner? The Jacob Selner. Ooh. I think that you've, uh, you've been maybe in the background once or twice on this podcast because... You share something with one of the co-hosts. I'm not sure which one. Yeah, I'm Jeremy's personal chef. So if you ever hear sizzling sounds in the background, it's it's probably me cooking him steak and eggs. It's his nightly Sunday meal. That's true. And that is when we record these episodes most of the time. Well, was I not supposed to say that? No, no, that's okay. We're peeling back the curtain a little bit more. We're well into season two here. As it's been peeled back for me, so it shall be peeled back for the listeners. Tell the people <laughs> what else you do, Jacob. Well, I'm the bass player with the Kalamazoo-based punk band Disco Wannabe. Incidentally, we just recorded our first full-length album here at Turkey Lake Studios. Jeremy Ruggles, the uh, famed co-host of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, did all of the recording and mixing for the album. That is going to be coming out at the end of March for streaming anywhere that you stream music and download through Bandcamp. We're also going to be releasing a series of short comic books that come with download codes for singles. And you can find us on bandcamp.com if you search for Disco Wannabe, all one word, and wannabe has two E's at the end of it. And that actually brings me to the record that I brought to all of you today. See, uh, the bass player in this particular band is a huge musical inspiration of mine, one of my favorite guys to listen to, B.B. Dickerson. If you don't know what band B.B. Dickerson played in, I'm not surprised. These guys were pretty unassuming they didn't really get up to a lot of rock star antics. Today's album is Deliver the Word by War. War. Hell yeah. War. I'm just going to go on record and say that this is one of the greatest bands of all time. And I'm very excited that we are uh, finally featuring them on this podcast. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I'm glad we're featuring them because... Maybe they're unassuming ways for as many war albums as I own. I've never really thought to look into who they were, the individuals. Nor me. And one of the things I found particularly interesting while researching is war had a mission statement and they wanted to speak out against violence, hunger, and gang culture. They decided to wage war on war and use music and musical instruments as their weapons. Let's hear that war on war action. It is some fantastic war-on-war war action. What's the, what's the first track we're going to listen to? 
The first one is actually the first track on the album. It's called the H2 Overture, which is both a fantastic pun, H2O obviously being the chemical compound name for water. I think it may also be a reference to the hydrogen bomb, uh, and the song is chaotic and frenetic. So it could possibly be meant to simulate the arc of a nuclear bombing. Ooh. Well, let's hear that track. The thing I love about this tune, it obviously starts off real easy. It kind of flows in. And then once it hits that funky part, you could isolate the rhythm section and the flute, that real f spitty, aggressive flute. It almost sounds like it could be a Herbie Mann recording. You could isolate the piano and it sounds like you're at some kind of maybe like a Rachmaninoff recital. These guys, their music is a synthesis of a huge variety of genres and musical elements. I their music is almost as eclectic as America, and I think it's a great representation of American music in general in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, running the gamut from smooth soul sounds to full-on psychedelic. I mean, it could be anything from the Temptations' Psychedelic Shack to uh, a Leon Haywood record. I watched a short, more recent interview with Lonnie Jordan, the you know one of the leaders of the group, and they asked him about like what he thought the band sounded like what was their you know genre and he said it's always been hard to nail the group down but the way he thinks of it is something like universal street music i like that yeah when you read yeah. about this band people call them fusion they get called funk rock jam they get called progressive soul it, it almost sounds like people are making up genres sometimes to try to fit these guys in somewhere 
but Universal Street Music, and that was part of their mission. So these guys grew up in pretty rough neighborhoods in South Central Los Angeles for the most part, except for Lee Oscar, who uh, was from Scandinavia. And ironically, he had the largest afro in the band. But these guys were coming from pretty rough neighborhoods. There was a lot of violence around growing up, and there was that synthesis. Yeah, they're of, like Long Beach and Compton, right? Yeah. Where they're based. Yeah, and they were playing a lot of the Long Beach clubs and parties when they were coming up. So one of the things, too, uh, speaking of Lonnie Jordan, who is the keyboardist in the band, and interestingly, too, the only member of the band currently. So uh, they, they had a couple different split-offs, and Lonnie Jordan is the only original member of War, still in War, and they still perform. A bunch of the other guys in the band started a band called Lowrider Band uh, after some, some label and money disputes in the ni- 1990s. Yeah, I was reading that there was a reunion in 2008, and it was just Eric Burden and Lonnie and none of the other guys and according to Lonnie, there's no bad blood between him and the other guys, but I couldn't find anywhere any of the other guys saying anything about the the break. Yeah, me neither. For our listeners who, who don't know already, it's, it's probably confusing that Eric Burden suddenly just appeared in this band. Well, and he didn't. <laughs> Eric Burden didn't just suddenly appear. So I have loved this band for a long time, actually slipping into darkness. I started playing bass when I was 10. The first funk song that I learned was War's huge hit, Slipping Into Darkness, off of All Day Music. Mm-hmm. So I always thought that War was an extant band. They were working, and then at some point after the Animals, Eric Burton said, hey, I like you guys, let's do an album together. In fact, War was a band called Night Shift, playing clubs up and down Los Angeles, up and down the coast. And one night they were playing at a bar in North Hollywood, Eric... Burden happened to come in. He was hanging out with Lee Oscar, apparently, and this band Night Shift was playing. The guy singing for them was actually a football player, a guy named Deacon Jones, who played for the Rams. Uh, Eric Burden had just broken up the second incarnation of the Animals, and he was looking for a new and exciting sound. He walks into this club, Night Shift is playing, and he was blown away by their sound. The audience was having fun. Apparently, everyone was having a great time. So Jerry Goldsmith, who was the author of such 60s hit songs as I Want Candy, My Boyfriend's Back, and Hang On Sloopy, got in touch with the band, and the next day they started jamming together. Apparently they hit it off, and in 1970, War started their first world tour with Eric Burden supporting the album Eric Burden Declares War. Apparently the band changed their name. Uh, It was initially just Eric Burden. They were leaving a bar in Japan when Jerry Goldsmith turned around and said, man, I'm really glad I know you guys. It's like, you look like you just came from war because they were also drunk. And they said, hey, that's the name of the band. We'll call it War. And that kind of kicked the thing off. While they were on that tour in 1970, they also released The Black Man's Burden, which is a fantastic album. And I do appreciate how punny both of those album titles are. Yeah, those are great album titles. So the Eric Burden thing was going really well, apparently, but he was in the throes of some disputes with his label. And that's one of the things, too, that comes up in an interview that Lonnie Jordan gave that when Eric Burden left the band in 1970 or 71, there was no bad blood there either. Eric Burden was in the midst of litigation and didn't want to bring the guys in war down. He thought they had enough momentum to continue on their own. So he split and said, good luck to all of you. Incidentally, though, in... September of 1970, War played a club in London called Ronnie Scott's Club, and uh, Jimi Hendrix sat in to jam with them, and it was the last public performance that he did, interestingly. Yeah, it was the night 
before he died, Jimi Hendrix sat in and apparently played a Memphis Slim song called Mother Earth for an hour straight with no effects. And it sounded like Lonnie thought it was kind of boring and annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it also, and you know, Lonnie in that same interview, I I read that article as well. Lonnie says, yeah, the next day he returned to Mother Earth. Uh, That's an interesting thing too. One of the the criticisms that the guys in war had of Eric Burden early on was that he loved to do blues and R&B. And Lonnie Jordan says, and Lonnie Jordan's the most outspoken guy in the band. So I don't know if maybe there was some kind of agreement where the other guys wouldn't speak out publicly or something after the split. But Lonnie Jordan's really the only guy that's spoken on behalf of war. But Lonnie Jordan mentions how Eric Burden wanted to do blues and R&B stuff nonstop. And he said the guys in war had OD'd on blues. They grew up in this this rough part of Los Angeles and there were parties all the time. And there was always blues playing at the parties and there'd be these fights. And so growing up, these guys associated blues with violence in the neighborhoods. And so they wanted to break away from that. And as part of their their mission to play music that supported and encouraged fidelity among human beings, they decided to play music that was peaceful. And even there's a strong protest element or a socially conscious element in all of these songs. And I like it because it's it's a little bit hidden. It's a little bit hidden behind this deep, intense groove. So it's music that makes you want to dance first. And then maybe the lyrics come as an afterthought. And the lyrics are all incredibly simple, but, and we'll talk about it later, one of the songs that I wanted to discuss on this album in particular was Me and Baby Brother, which has maybe maybe 17 novel words in the whole song, but it tells an evocative story of the death of a young man that was presumably either relative or friend of the band members. Uh, the lyrics, me and baby brother used to run together. And then the song ends with the band repeating, come back, baby brother, come back, baby brother, over and over again. So I think that particular song speaks to violence in the inner cities and these guys' mission to push back against violence. Well, would you like to listen to that song next? Let's give it a shot. And I believe that one was one of the hits off of this album as well. It Mm -hmm. reached number 15 on the American chart in 1974. And in 1973, it hit 18 on the American R&B chart. Yeah. So relatively big song. And part of it, like I said, is it's got this impetuous groove. It really makes you want to dance when you put it on, first and foremost. Well, let's do that one. Side B, track one. Side B, track one. Me and Baby Brother.
that one definitely has hit written all over it and i can see why it would have charted in its day but you know this is a band that i feel like nowadays they're only known for a couple songs namely low rider and why can't we be friends which are both on the same album why can't we be friends but this one has a couple big hits on it too that just haven't really carried through time as much and you can definitely find this album almost anywhere for next to nothing most definitely and i think that could be in part lowrider has one of the most iconic bass lines in all of 20th century music and then why can't we be friends is the most sing along a bull song I think this band did. So it makes sense that those are the two that kind of have stuck in the social consciousness or the memory of people moving past the 70s. But there are a ton of gems, especially if you're a, a person who DJs any kind of dance parties ever when, when those start up again after the pandemic. I would definitely recommend grabbing some of these war singles to throw in your bag if you don't have them. Uh, especially some of these extended editions can really keep a dance floor moving for a long time. The interplay between the drums and the bass on these tracks and the amount of complexity in the percussion really lends itself to dancing. And that's, I think, why this band was so powerful. It's fun, fun music but it's not innocuous. It, it doesn't say nothing. It says quite a lot. One of the things that I always tend to focus in on is the interplay between drums and bass in a track. And for these guys, they've got it. No single musician in the ensemble takes up too much space. Lee Oscar, actually, the harmonica player, stated in an interview that one of his goals, uh, at first he just copied the saxophone lines uh, because he wanted to play nice, and then eventually started to play counter melodies, and then he took on a role as a soloist in the ensemble. But he said he always wanted to make sure that he was leaving enough space for everything else. If you notice in the liner notes on this one, for those of you at home who feel compelled to pick one up, or if you have it in your collection, it's just been sitting there and you haven't given it the time of day, in the liner notes, every member of the band has a percussion credit and a backup vocals credit. That tells me that these guys all probably had a bunch of little shakers and percussion toys laying around, and they were all screaming into the mics every chance they got, which is probably part of the reason that they toured for as long as they did. I mean, they were at it hard at work until the 80s. So we're talking, you know, almost two decades, late 80s, almost two decades of continuous touring for this band. Yeah, the, the amount of space that their songs have has always really impressed me because they're not, they're not a small group by, you know, number of members that are playing. And also the, the thing I was reading and getting ready for this episode is that the majority of their songs came from extended jam sessions in the studio. And a lot of them are actually just edits of the best section of an hour long jam. And yeah. just the fact that they can go that long and create all this incredible music yet have it all sound not sparse, but yeah, you can just tell that everybody's consciously leaving each other's space, having that percussion credit. You just, you know that all these guys were totally willing to sit out and just add a little bit of background flavor to the song if it didn't feel right to have a solo on their particular instrument at that time. It's just such such a great sense of dynamic with this group that really pushed him over the edge. Yeah, and there's also that other element like, oh, no time for saxophone. Great, let me grab a tambourine. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so when they weren't, and I think that's part of the reason that their sound is as big as it is, even though it's sparse, is when one of the members wasn't playing their main instrument, they were playing percussion. The thing that Sean said about their recordings often being extended jam sessions in the studio that were edited down yeah. actually reminded me a lot of the process of the German band Can, the Krautrock band Can. Mm -hmm. A lot of their stuff was edited down 
extended jams in the studio. I don't know how many, if that was common practice in uh, exact whatever the uh, exact genre that War were doing, but a lot of experimental bands were doing stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say that was the approach for the majority of Sonic Youth music as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I listen to War, it, it does feel... You know, we've talked about a little bit on the podcast about soul music's progression becoming, you know, by the late 60s, early 70s, coming from being, you know, songs about heartbreak or party songs to having a uh, more socio-political message. And I really feel like War are at the vanguard of doing that in they just do it so well. Yeah, so few of their songs are, ooh, I love you, baby, or ooh, you broke my heart. And so many of them are, hey, here's a great dance tune, uh, and we're also going to bear ourselves a little bit. You know, and some of them are a little far out and, and strange. I mean, Spill the Wine is a great example of that on on the first record. <laughs> That's you know, a very weird one. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's psychedelic in nature almost. It's got kind of an Alice in Wonderland connotation. And I think Sean had mentioned earlier he had a little story he wanted to share about that one. Well, just to clarify, that's Eric Burden era war. Right. Right. I, I feel like Eric Burden's intent was maybe a little bit more musical and aesthetic than the rest of the group. I always felt like the band got better after Eric Burden left, which is, you know, no dig against Eric Burden at all. He's great. Animals are great. But I've always been so impressed that this group rose to much higher success after having their much more famous frontman leave the group that like is there even really a parallel for that in other <laughs> bands of this level he was the star quality of the you know they were say we said that they kind of lacked that individual front person and he was that and yet they had bigger success without him yeah i mean there's been countless cases of the backing band in very very successful groups trying to go out on their own and then just flopping hard you know the, the doors the the doors the attractions uh rick james group stone city band tried to make a record and all of it just flopped without the direction of the leader but anyway the 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 song spill the wine has one of the most commonly misheard lyrics in popular music everyone thinks that the lyric is spill the wine dig that girl mm-hmm. but the line is actually spill the wine take that pearl which uh, Lonnie was talking about the recording of that and didn't get into the uh, specific details. During the recording of that song, Eric Burden was in the studio with a woman while recording, and they were getting into some hanky-panky, it would seem, while the recording was happening. And Lonnie looks up and sees that and is just so blown away that he doesn't look at the styrofoam cup that he's attempting to pour wine into and spills it all over the board and destroys the the board mid-recording, which then inspired the lyric, Spill the Wine. Wow. So incidentally, after Eric Burden leaves the band, too, I think the music becomes more substantive. What I mean by that is Eric Burden was, I think, bringing this kind of blue-eyed soul element to it in a way. And these guys, after he left, definitely were a lot more vocal in terms of making songs that spoke out against the kind of violence that they had seen growing up in in the poor parts of Los Angeles and also in the wars that were being pumped into everyone's living room that were happening in the world at that time. So I think not only did the band have more success, but the musical message became more profound, and maybe they were able to better fulfill their notion of a band that promoted fidelity and harmony without having a designated frontman. 
Right. Yeah. And his, his approach was, it seemed like a lot of the lyrics that Eric Burden was, was doing was uh, improvised and kind of free association. So from what I've learned, it's or just covers. Yeah. Or just covers. So it seemed like he didn't have a bigger message going on. There wasn't uh, social commentary and he also came from a completely different background than the rest of the group. So yeah, the, the group just got so much more interesting. Like you said, all their, their lyrics after that point, even on songs where there isn't a lot of lyrics, it still has a deeper meaning when you And so Deliver, Deliver the Word is the second album that was made without Eric Burden. It met much greater commercial success than War, the band's eponymous album, which was the first they made without Eric Burden. So I think that maybe we see in this particular album their fulfillment of their musical vision, uh, and obviously their success only grew after this one. I think the next two albums were much more successful commercially, and I think that their producer, Jerry Goldstein, was pretty instrumental in that. I mean, the guy knew how to write hit songs. He was a hit maker in the industry. So I think that it's, it's an interesting project to see these guys able to write music that charts, uh, that also has a socially conscious message. And you said that you didn't want to feature the big hit song from this Gypsy Man. It's, I think it's one of the less impactful songs in terms of the social message, which I think is an important aspect of this band's music. But we could definitely talk about it. I think it bears talking about it. it was the largest hit the band had to date. Uh, so the single Gypsy Man was number eight on the U.S. charts and number six on the R&B charts. That's a big hit. That's a big hit. Especially for an 11-minute jam song with a lot of like drone kind of elements almost. Yeah, it does have almost maybe an Indian music feel in parts of it. Yeah, they're definitely, they pull from a lot of different genres all at once. Uh, I noticed that the, I think I was listening to the digital version and it was the single version of Gypsy Man on the album. Like it was an abbreviated five minute version of the song, which is strange. The album features an extended introduction. And then there was also an eight track edition that came up that had a couple bonus tracks as well. And they had to play with the song length and, and mastering on a couple tunes for that one. So if there are any any 8-track fans out there, that might be a cool one to get your hands on as well. <laughs> well, if we're not going to listen to that song, is there, what did you want to feature next? Oh, I think maybe we could get into Deliver the Word, the self-titled track for this album. Uh, obviously, and one of the things, I don't know if I mentioned the album design, so the album concept was developed by Lee Oscar, the band's harmonica player, and I think I've maybe talked about him a little more than the other members I, mainly because I think his story is, is pretty interesting. He's an odd fit for these guys. Seemingly, he came to the United States from Europe and just sort of made his way from New York to L.A. playing harmonica for money until winding up with this band. But he had the, the concept design for the art. He wanted it to look like a Bible that you would find in a hotel room, apparently, and at the bottom left of the record. So it's, it's a black modeled surface that almost looks like leather car interior or a faux leather on a cheap Bible. And then debossed into the album, there is gold lettering with some grapevine motifs up in the corners. And the bottom left corner has a cutout. On the record sleeve, there is a person walking in the sunset with their head bent. And on the opposite side, it so shows a beach scene at night. 
So it's it's an interesting album. Again, it's it's made to look like a Bible, but then in the bottom left where a little bit is torn out, you see a person who's either pensive or suffering walking through the sand. And then we have a song called Deliver the Word that is part dance dance hall track, part civil rights anthem. Yeah, I actually thought my copy was just damaged when I first purchased this many years ago. As did I. Because <laughs> it looks torn right out of there. But it is deliberate. My copy has the wrong sleeve inside, so unfortunately I don't have the person walking with their head bent or the moon scene. Uh, I, I just have one of those you know, record sleeves that's got all the advertisements for other records on it. But The die cut's also cool on this because so many other records that tried to do a die cut jacket at the time end up getting ripped apart from just being in bins. But this one's small and subtle enough that it, it usually doesn't lead to further damage on the jacket jeremy's giving me the get on with the fingers so i think he wants to roll the record now yeah let's uh, listen to the title track the titular cut deliver the word the titular cut One of the things that fascinates me with this band, without doing a deep dive into each one of their solo careers and really learning the individual's voices, you don't really know who is singing which song or which part of songs. They'll often 
hand off vocal parts as of some sort of relay, maybe choosing different voices to suit different parts, just like an orche- orchestral composer might pick a different instrument for a passage. Uh, and I wanted to name the band members as well, because we've talked extensively about a couple, but I feel like it's only fair to name them all. So the iteration of the band that performed on this recording were D. Allen on congas, bongos, and vocals, Howard Scott playing guitar, percussion, and vocals, B.B. Dickerson on bass, uh, as well as percussion and vocals. Lonnie Jordan playing keys, percussion, and vocals. Harold Brown playing drums, percussion, and vocals. Charles Miller playing horns, including saxophones and clarinet, percussions, and vocals. Lee Oscar on harmonica. Wait, wait, let me guess. Percussion and vocals? Absolutely. Uh, but they, they, it almost seems like there's this egalitarian structure to the band such that they didn't care to call out who the individual singers were on each track yeah which in a weird way for me uh, as much as i'd like to know who's singing what and get to know the group's different voices the fact that they're just everything they do is so seamless it really just feels like they're one entity all working together all communicating effortlessly have you ever been to a performance where all the members of the band are smiling and looking at each other and it seems like that moment on stage is the most fun moment of their lives. Mm-hmm. I get that feeling from listening to War's recordings, and I think if I could travel in a time machine to go back and see any band in their heyday, it would probably be War. That's completely understandable. They really produce some magic. And it, and I can only imagine what they were like live. I've never actually watched live footage. Neither have I, and there's not a ton on the internet, just like there aren't articles in Rolling Stone magazine about trashed hotel rooms and domestic disputes, just as there aren't op-eds about these horrendous people that came through town making horrible music. It seems like this band generally kept their noses clean. I'm not certain why. I, I guess they were all pretty uh, pretty hardworking, working-class kids from L.A. I know a couple of them served in the military during the Vietnam War. Uh, so maybe maybe they didn't have much of a taste for the quote-unquote rock star lifestyle, I'm not sure. I like that about them. I do, too. Yeah, that's good to know. Sean, did you find other music like this? Oh, I sure did. We talked about war having so many different genre influences. You can go so many different directions of contemporary bands that shared a little piece of similarity with the group so or sampled them in in more uh, recent times sorry go on oh absolutely there's a whole other playlist that could be made of just 90s through modern day artists that were influenced or sampled war it just keeps going and going but groups from the early 70s whose tracks i put on here include the blackbirds george benson with a cover of the world is a ghetto mm-hmm Put a Mungo Jerry track on there. Earth, yeah. Wind, and Fire is a easy comparison to this group. Some later psychedelic temptations. I put Edwin Starr's track "War," which <laughs> many uninitiated people assume was the song done by the group "War." Not true. And then a couple groups that I think maybe have some of the closest similarity to "War" that don't get enough love are Mandrill was another group that did a ton of different styles and was a a multi-racial band as well. And then some kind of Latin crossover groups, Malo and El Chicano from that time period. Uh, Also Santana was a contemporary that had a lot of Latin influence, just like War and these other groups. A couple soul artists, Bloodstone, Brothers Johnson, Isley Brothers, 
put a red bone track on there. You can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd buy that podcast, all one word to find the similar artists to war and similar artists to every other episode we've done on season two. And if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at I'd buy that podcast. We will post about the episodes a day in advance. So you'll know what's coming up, what you'll be hearing. Well, you, we usually tease it. So you have to guess there's a picture and then, of course, on the day of, we'll let you know that the episode is available. And the, the Spotify playlist is also usually announced uh, the day after the episode. So we're getting close to 2,000 followers on Instagram. So check us out there at I'd Buy That Podcast. Are you saying that your listeners should deliver the word? Indeed Ooh. we are, Jacob. Uh, I would like to Indeed thank... Indeed we are. I would like to thank all of you for having me on tonight, allowing me to, uh, to help out and share this record that I love so dearly. There's yeah. been so many times throughout my career of being a used record seller that I've seen someone flip through the new arrivals bin and pull out this very record and then look at the back cover to see which songs are on it and quickly throw it back in the bin because it didn't have the songs they were familiar with. No more will that happen <laughs> now that we have delivered the word about this masterpiece from war. And I feel like this is the one you see most just floating around for some reason, even though it wasn't their best selling. Maybe just because it doesn't have the hits, so people don't hold on to it yeah. as much. Yeah, that's exactly why. I, I think that it, it doesn't disappear as quickly. You see a lot of Why Can't We Be Friends too, but that's the one that's going to move the most, I would say. But all their albums that I know are good. Galaxy, The World is a Ghetto. All Day Music. All Day Music. Uh, Outlaws, isn't that one too? Yeah, Outlaws is when they're kind of a little bit past their prime. There's a few duds on that record, but it's still yeah. got some bangers on it. All of their records, even their like way late period stuff that didn't chart, all of it at least has some good material on it. And then there's some real sleeper hits, like the, the Platinum Jazz compilation that was, uh, I think Lee Oscar put that together. It was just sections from different jam, se different jam sessions that had more of a jazz feel to it. And that ended up being one of the best-selling... Yeah, that was put out on Blue Note, right? It was one of the best-selling records that Blue Note ever released. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a whole lot of different areas that are cataloged to dive into. Honestly, this isn't even my favorite War record, but I still love this album because they have just an amazing catalog, all worth digging into. It's not my favorite War record either, but I think it's the best fit for this podcast, certainly. Sure. Easiest one to find for a buck, absolutely, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, awesome. I'm so glad that we finally did a war album. And I think that our work here is done, boys. No, it's not. We have one more song to play, the people. True, true. What are we going to go out on? We're going to go out on the second to last track on the album. This would be Side 2, Track 3, Southern Part of Texas. And I believe this song is about a woman who was in an abusive relationship, murdered her abuser, and then was pursued by the law. Holy damn. All right, well, we're going to leave on that one. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Sean Hart. No, I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Jeremy Ruggles' personal cook, uh, Jacob Selner. Thank you, Jacob. I like that. For my delicious steak and eggs dinner. Also, your dinner will be late tonight. I apologize. <laughs> It's <laughs> <laughs>